For the past several weeks, we've been looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. After he arose from the grave, he appeared to the women who had come to the tomb to care for his body, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and to the apostles, as well as to over 500 people at one time in Galilee. And then after removing all doubt that he had actually physically risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven, leaving with the promise that he would send his Holy Spirit and that he would himself one day return. Jesus had spent three years preparing the apostles to take the gospel into the world. And he commissioned them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. He had chosen 12 apostles, but one betrayed him and then took his own life. And while the remaining 11 were waiting in Jerusalem for the promised arrival of the Holy Spirit, they selected Matthias to take Judas's place. Now Luke indicates that they prayed, they sought God's direction before drawing lots, and that Matthias was then numbered with the 11 apostles. It is, however, nowhere stated that Matthias was actually the one God had chosen to replace Judas. And some are convinced that the Apostle Paul was to be that 12th apostle. But what sets apostles apart from disciples is that they were personally taught by Jesus and commissioned by him. And when Luke closes his gospel, Paul is nowhere in sight and certainly would not qualify as an apostle. That changes, however, in the ninth chapter of Acts, where we read of one more post-resurrection appearance. And this post-resurrection, post-ascension appearance is so important that it is actually recorded three times in the book of Acts. We're going to look at that final appearance of Jesus this morning before beginning a study of the first letter, the first epistle of that final apostle. In the 26th chapter of Acts, Paul is telling Agrippa about his encounter with the risen Christ. He begins by telling how he had furiously pursued Christians, arresting them and condemning them to death if they wouldn't give up their faith in Jesus. He continues by saying, while thus engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Saul, the persecutor of the church, then became the great apostle Paul. Now, it took him a while to understand that his call was to be primarily an apostle to non-Jewish people, but he eventually got it. And on his first missionary journey, he traveled to the Roman province of Galatia, establishing churches and appointing elders in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Upon completion of that first tour, while reporting back to the Christians in Antioch of Syria, who had sent him out, he received some disturbing news that prompted his first epistle. And it's to that epistle, most likely written around 49 AD, that we turn our attention today. We begin with a look at the principles of the epistle, the one who sent it, and those to whom it was written. We're in Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead to all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Paul begins his first epistle, which is simply a formal letter intended to be read in churches as he would begin all his letters with the possible exception of Hebrews, which may or may not be from him, by identifying himself as the author of the letter. And as he does in the majority of his letters, he identifies himself as an apostle. This time, however, he emphasizes his apostleship more than usual, and he does so because his position as an apostle was being challenged. Some were apparently insisting that since he wasn't one of the original 12, that he wasn't a real apostle, and that what he taught, therefore, lacked apostolic authority. So it begins by stating in no uncertain terms that he is an apostle and by making it very clear that he understands what an apostle is, that an apostle is one directly designated as such by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, his readers were no doubt aware of the fact that the church in Antioch had sent Paul and Barnabas out as missionaries. 
And Paul isn't denying that when he speaks of himself as an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man. The church in Antioch had sent him out as a missionary, but it had nothing to do with his becoming an apostle. No man, nor any agency of man, including the church, can send someone out with apostolic authority. A church might help provide financial support for an apostle. It could pray for him. It could even offer some direction as to where he might go. But it could not make him into an apostle. Only Christ could do that. And no man nor agency of man had made Paul into apostle. He makes that very clear in the greeting to his letter. And he's going to support that in the body of his letter. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that means when he writes, he does so with the full authority of Jesus Christ. If we don't like something he's written, we can't dismiss it as simply being from Paul. Everything he has written has the same authority as that which is written in red letters in some Bible. What Paul has written is Holy Scripture. And the Apostle Peter confirmed this when he classified Paul's writings with the rest of the Scriptures in, in 2 Peter 3. Paul was an apostle, and he wrote Scripture. After thus identifying himself, Paul includes the brethren who are with him in the greeting. Who they are and where they are, he doesn't say. If the letter was written at the conclusion of his first missionary journey, it was probably written from Antioch in Syria. And Barnabas would have no doubt been one of the brethren sending greetings. Paul also notes that the letter is being addressed to the churches of Galatia. And we do know he established several churches in the Roman province of Galatia on his first missionary journey. But not all scholars are in agreement that those are the churches to which the letter is addressed. Until the 18th century, it was assumed this letter had been addressed to people who were Galatians by nationality, the Gauls, who had invaded northern Asia Minor in the 3rd century B.C., even though we have no record of Paul establishing churches there. Historical and geographical research done since then has convinced most scholars that the recipients of this letter were indeed the churches mentioned in Acts. Now, if you're looking about Galatians online, if you want to explore further the northern and southern Galatian theories, help yourself. We're going to assume this letter was addressed to the churches at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, in the southern part of the Roman province of Galatia. So thus far, we've discovered that the Apostle Paul was the author of Galatians, and that it was addressed to the churches of Galatia. But there's more to discover, even in the greeting to his letter. In fact, if we read between the lines just a bit, we might even discover the theme of this epistle. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out 
of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Now, Paul includes in his greeting the express desire that the recipients of his letter also be recipients of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing unusual in that. We find that in all of his personal letters. It would be a mistake, however, to dismiss this as a mere formality or to assume it's a simple wish that his letter find everyone well. As John R.W. Stott notes, although grace and peace are common monosyllables, they are pregnant with theological substance. He goes on to say that these words actually summarize Paul's gospel of salvation, that the nature of salvation is peace, reconciliation, peace with God, peace with men, peace within. And the source of salvation is grace, God's free favor, irrespective of any human merit or works, his loving kindness to the undeserving, and that this grace and peace flow from the Father and Son together. Now, actually, that much is included in all the greetings of Paul's letters. But he goes on here to say something even more about grace, laying a foundation for what he will have much to say in the body of the letter itself, giving us a hint as to the theme of the letter. He briefly states the nature and purpose of grace, showing how grace was expressed to man and what it cost. And he does so by reminding his readers that Jesus gave his life for our sins, that he went to the cross to save us, emphasizing that salvation comes from what Christ did, not what we do. And that, in fact, is going to be the theme of Paul's entire letter, that we are saved by what Christ did, not what we do or don't do. Because of this emphasis on grace, Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, the document that frees us from the bondage of trying to earn our salvation. Now, you're probably aware that that's also the theme of Romans. In fact, Galatians has been called an early rough draft of Romans, but that's not to depreciate it as less important, only to recognize that it is shorter and less formal. The Reformers loved this book, so much so that Luther said he was betrothed to it, that he was wedded to it. It freed him from the works-oriented concept of salvation that characterized the church of his day and brought new life to him and to all who understand it. Indeed, grace is the theme of Galatians. But all, Paul also wanted to make something clear about grace from the outset. 
And that is that grace is not license to sin. You know, Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. He died to rescue us from the power of evil and the values of this world. Grace doesn't allow us to view God as a kindly old grandfather who mumbles, boys will be boys, and overlooks our sin. God's grace confronts sin head on and then frees us from the bondage of sin, allowing us to live lives victorious over sin. That doesn't mean we'll be perfect. But it does mean that when sin manages to ensnare us in a time of weakness, we can be immediately freed from its grasp to continue living a life that brings glory to God. And the thought of that causes Paul to break into an unusual doxology of praise, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. We now know the author and recipients of this letter, and we've noted its theme. What then was the occasion for writing? Verses 6 through 9. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. At this point in his letters, Paul usually commends the churches to which he's writing. But he had no word of commendation for the Galatians. Instead, he expresses his amazement at what has happened to them and how quickly it has happened. He was writing to the Galatians because they were deserting the Lord. Now that probably came as a shock to them. They didn't think they were deserting the Lord. In fact, they no doubt thought they were becoming more devoted to him. After all, they were trying even harder than before to please him. Yes, the Judaizers had gotten to them. As soon as Paul had left Galatia, some men from Judea teaching that Gentiles couldn't just become Christians, but they had to first become Jews, came to town. And that in order to be acceptable to God, Gentiles would have to do everything that the Old Testament required of a Jew. And the Galatians were trying to do it. What they didn't realize was that to add anything to the grace of God is to deny the sufficiency of Christ's death. 
The Judaizers had told them that they couldn't be saved by simply coming to Christ in faith and allowing him to cleanse them of their sin in a watery grave of baptism. They told them they also had to be circumcised and abide by all the laws, customs, and restrictions of the Old Testament. What they were saying was that the gospel Paul preached wasn't good enough. And the Galatians were buying it. They had accepted a different gospel, which Paul quickly added, was not a gospel at all. It wasn't good news. It was bad news. It was nothing more than bondage of the law added to the gospel, which in effect took all the good news out of the gospel. Paul was really upset by this. In fact, he said those who were teaching this were intentionally distorting, perverting the gospel. And because of it, he said they were to be condemned, accursed, damned. And he said it again, just to make sure they didn't miss it. Those who distort the gospel with new revelations or additional requirements are accursed. Now, obviously, the Judaizers aren't causing a problem in the church today. But there are those who claim to have received latter-day revelations from angels that are contrary to what we've received. And there are those who would saddle us with additional requirements and restrictions to be saved. It was easy for us to fall victim of those who want to challenge us to do more for Jesus. Who stress how important it is that, that we please him in every detail of our life. And we agree that we should please him in every detail of our life. But they twist it just enough to make us think that if we don't do that, we've lost our salvation. And the only way to secure our standing before God is to be perfect. We can't do that. We can't do that. Sin still grabs a hold of our heart. We have an enemy that roams among us like a lion seeking to devour us. And for believers, he doesn't mostly do that by tempting us to do bad. He tempts us to think we've got to do more to deserve what Christ offers to us. That robs us of our joy. That robs us of our peace. That robs us of the confidence we have to come before Christ as one whose sins have been forgiven. That robs us of the assurance that when we stand before the throne of God, the Father will see his Son when he looks at us. Not our sin. The gospel frees us to live in peace with our Heavenly Father. It's not licensed to sin. It doesn't mean we can just do whatever we want. It means that we are free to come with the assurance that we've been forgiven, and we continue to be forgiven when we occasionally stumble. 
That's the grace of Christ. And that's Paul's message to us in Galatians. It's a very simple message. Don't let anyone rob you of your freedom in Christ. That doesn't mean free to do whatever you want. It means freedom to come before God with the assurance that you're acceptable to him. That is what gives us freedom. That's what gives us peace. The freedom to know that we are acceptable to God on the basis of Christ's death and that nothing else is needed. If you truly understand that, you will be changed by it. But you won't find yourself under bondage to the law you'll be under bondage to love, a love for Christ that will motivate you to live a life that pleases and honors him. And in doing so, you will have the peace that comes from a grace that is greater than your sin. Let's thank him for that. Father, thank you. Thank you for the assurance of our acceptability before you. Thank you for the grace offered to us through the sacrifice of your son. May we never lose sight of that gift. And may that gift motivate us not only to lives of great joy and peace, but lives of grateful obedience, knowing that We express our love for you by by pleasing you. Every decision we make should be centered on your will. How can we best show you how much we love you? How can we best express our confidence in your love and your grace? Grace that is greater than any sin we can commit or have committed. Grace that gives us the freedom to stand before you as children adopted back into the family of God. Thank you, Father, for grace that's greater than our sin. In Jesus' name.